You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. Hey, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I'm here with my friend Kristen, who's a friend of the show, and you've heard her on the show before. But did you know she's also a counselor in training with a physical disability? Hey, Kristen, can you tell us more about that? Hey, Andrew, I sure can. Um, I've been working as a peer support counselor for about seven years now, and I'm now expanding my services, offering trauma-informed accessible support to community members. Uh, Some of the things I cover are anxiety, depression, grief, relationship issues, and all from a disability-centered standpoint. I I love that so much, and I love that we're finally talking about offering disability-centered counseling to other disabled folks because it's so rarely in the field and I'm so glad you're doing that. And so I wonder, Kristen, are you offering these services to, oh, I don't know, listeners of a particular podcast on this particular ad right now? Absolutely, Andrew. I'm offering accessible services to listeners of this podcast and anyone else who's interested in contacting me. And she's also doing that. Yeah. Yeah, you're also doing it whether you're disabled or not, which is totally great. So this service is for everyone. And I think what makes it unique is that even if you're not disabled, you can learn things from a disability-centered lens. And I think that's really important. Yes. So Kristen, this is awesome and this is so great. Can you tell us what your hours are like? Sure. Right now I'm able to offer pretty flexible availability to meet the needs of everyone. I know that Um, sometimes having physical disabilities and just life being busy in general it's hard to uh, make time for things like counseling but I think it's really important so um, when we touch base hopefully we can work out a time that works for you that's awesome now you know you and I know from trying to get traditional counseling services in, in the past how often financially inaccessible they are so what's the cost of all this great service Yeah, because I believe that uh, counseling should be accessible and affordable for everyone. My fee right now is a sliding scale starting at $20 per hour. That is so, that's, that is, that's like basically cheaper than anything you can buy on Amazon right now. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome. So I want everybody to know how they can get a hold of you and how they can, how they can, access your services because what you're offering is so important. How do people get a hold of you? So right now, the best way to reach me is through email. It's kristen.williams10 at gmail.com. That's kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N dot Williams, W-I-L-L-I-A-M-S, one zero at gmail.com. Amazing. I'll make sure also, Kristen, that all of this is in the show notes for the episode today. Thank you so Thanks. much for Thank you so much for being here and telling us what you do. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners. Andrew here. I'm coming at you with a titillating reminder that pre-sales for the world's first disability-driven sex toy, the Bump and Joystick, are open right now. You can go to www.getbumpin.com. That's www.getbumpin.com. And you can pre-order your very own 
bumpin' joystick right now, or you can get a gift card for that deliciously disabled person in your life right now. Do it now. Go get it and be part of this amazing new innovation in sex tech. Thanks, friends. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonapussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at Clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone a willy or clone a pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you, and they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone a willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD, that's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember, this is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled, we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. And thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories on the new aptly named New and Shiny Cripple Co. Productions. Want to give a quick shout out to my friend Dick Wound from the Off the Cuffs podcast for helping me create the new bumper for the um, Cripple and Co. Productions. I started a little podcast company called Cripple and Co. Uh, you may have heard us on my other one, Wheels on the Ground Productions, but then I did a Google and I found out that someone else had that name. So I was like, oh, fuck, I better change the name to something more uh, more on brand for me. And I use the word cripple a lot, and I love the idea of bringing... I love the idea of, like, Cripple and Company. It just is really cool. So Cripple and Co. Productions is where we're at. And I want to take a minute before I dive into um, the episode and the shoutouts and all those things for today. I want to take a minute to explain to you why I started Cripple and Co. and why I started the idea of putting my podcast, Disability After Dark, going into almost its sixth year, holy fuck, why I decided to branch out and put it on my own network. I was on the... I was on Dick Wound's network, um, which the name is 
escaping me at the moment, but I was on their network for a while, and then I decided to make my own, and I decided to make my own, and ultimately I've named it Cripple and Co. because I wanted to create a space for disabled creators or somebody who has a voice to create disability-centric content. We don't have enough of that in podcast land, in the world. We don't have enough of that. So Disability After Dark is only one of the offerings that we have on Cripple & Co. I've also signed my friend George Parker, who you heard a couple episodes back. They host the A.G. Parker's um, Cabinet of Curiosities, where they speak with disabled people about art. Really, really great podcast, and I'll be sharing episodes of that on this feed occasionally to help them get some traction, because I think it's really important that I can use my platform to guide and help and promote other disabled folks. So what I'm saying is, I have this platform, Cripple & Co., and I want to give it to you. I want to give you the chance to be on a disability-centric network for podcasting. So if you're out there and you have an idea for a podcast and you want help making a disability-themed podcast very similar to this or something totally different, maybe you want to do a scripted show, maybe you want to do like a six-part series, maybe you want to do long form like I do, I don't know, whatever it is you want to do. Maybe you want to do a show about crippling crimes. Maybe you want to do a show about like being in the hospital. Maybe you want to do a show about just being a disabled teenager. I don't know. Whatever it is, there's a, there's a spot here for you. And I am urging you, if you want to do this, to reach out to me at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let me know you want to start your own show and I can help you make the show that you want to make a thing. Because I think we need other disabled voices out there telling story. And Cripple and Co. is a great place to do that. So how you would do that is I would give you the bumper like you heard at the beginning with the sound of the wheelchair and the wheels going away. And you would then put that at the beginning of your show, every show, just to make sure that people know you're on this network. And then the rest is yours. The show is yours. I own nothing. I just, I help you promote and push out your disability-centric content. So think about that if you want if you want to create a show, if you've never really given it some thought, but now you want to, and if you want to put your mark on disability-themed content in the podcast space, I want to help you do that. So consider reaching out to me. But now, enough of my oversell. Let's get started. First things first, I got to give a shout out to the people that keep the bright lights shining on disability stories here, and those are my awesome Patreon peeps who do that for me and put their hard-earned dollars down to keep a show like this going. So today, I need to give a shout out to my new friend and my Patreon peep, Margot, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last name, so Margot Goff, Margot Goff. When I saw the amount you pledged, I coughed with joy because you pledged $5 a month for a yearly amount of $100. And I was like, when I saw that come through on my email, 
I was like, wow, that's really cool and super generous. And thank you so much. So Margot Goff, your pun is that your donation made me cough with joy. Margot Goff, you made me cough. Thank you so much for your pledge to Disability After Dark. It means so much. If you out there want to pledge your hard-earned dollars and want to support the show financially, it would mean the world to me as a disabled creator. And if you want to do that, you will be able to do that, to do that for a dollar a month or up to $5 a month or more if you want or a yearly amount like Margot did. And when you do that, you'll get the show one day early. So Margot and the other Patreon pledgers are listening to this on Friday as opposed to everyone else who is listening to this on Saturday. If you want to get it one day early, completely ad-free, you, you're hearing, you heard on the main feed, you heard all of the ads for bumping and the ads for, um, for Clone a Willy and the ads for Come As You Are. All those ads are not in the, uh, the Patreon version. We get we dive right into the episode. So if you want to get rid of all the ads, although thank you sponsors, I love you so much. If you want to get rid of all the ads and just dive right in, consider supporting us on Patreon. I try not to add Patreon exclusive content because I don't want to put in anything behind a paywall, really. I really try hard to, to not add Patreon exclusives because a lot of disabled folks don't have money. So the only thing I do is say, if you support the Patreon, you get the show one day early and completely ad-free. And I don't really want to add more Patreon-related things because disabled folks and chronically ill folks don't have money and should be allowed to access these things for as free as possible. But if you want to support financially, patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. If you want to support in other ways... You can go to wherever you're listening right now and leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show. Tell us why you're awesome. Tell your friends. Especially if you're on the Spotify. Go on there right now and, and leave a review and leave a star. Right now, on the time of this recording, we have like 35 or 36 like five-star reviews. And right now we're at five. I want to get up to like the thousands of reviews on the Spotify. So if you're listening, and I know most of you listen on Apple and iTunes, but if you if you do saunter over to the Spotify, leave us leave leave Disability After Dark, your favorite disability related show, a review there. That would be great. And that also works if you can't support us monetarily. But enough of my rambling, let's get to the show today. It's a really good one. Let's get to it. Today on the show, I want you to get comfy, cozy, and crippled, because things are about to get really awesome. Today on the show, I talk with my friend, artist Dominic Quagliozzi. I may have been pronouncing his name wrong, but he is one of my favorite all-time guests of any time of anything I've ever done, any kind of podcasting, any kind of work. I have to tell you, I listen back to this episode right now. And if this guy doesn't get a podcast or some sort of storytelling platform, then there's something wrong with the world. This is such a fun fucking episode. And we go real deep, real quick, he and I, Dominic, in this episode. We recorded this back in October 2021. 
and we talk about Dominic's experience with cystic fibrosis and what it was like for him to go through a double lung transplant. We explore trigger warning, some medical trauma stuff. So if you are not prepped to listen to that, it's very brief, but it is in there. Um, Be prepared for that. And if you want to skip off those things and skip ahead, that's fine. But we also talk about his love of artistic representations of of um, CF and how he uses his cystic fibrosis in his art to make statements about body image and illness and disability and all these things. And we talk about things like how he wanted to hide his cystic fibrosis from people in college and how he, how sometimes he was fucking people and he coughed up blood. Uh, We talk about how we think E.T. the movie might be a disability film. There's so much going on in this episode. We talk about how Dominic likes his balls um, and how his cystic fibrosis affected his relationships with his wife and with his son. And there's so much that we do in this episode. But it was just... It was one of those episodes, and all my episodes are great. I love every single guest that comes on here. But sometimes you sit with somebody and you know right away that they're going to be a friend, and you know right away that they're going to be somebody that you connect with deeply. And when I listened back to this just now, hearing him talk about the links between illness and body image and how he felt about himself and sexuality, I felt so much akin to Dominic And I cannot wait for you to hear this episode, which I've aptly titled, I Like My Balls. So that's in the title. And it was really funny when he said it. You'll you'll hear me laugh my head off. Um, It was so good. It was just a really fun interview. He has, if you're listening at the time of this, when this comes out on January 22nd, he has a showing at a museum, which he talks about in the episode, and all the info is there. And if you go to his website, artistdominic.com, all the stuff is there. But uh, I'm going to stop rambling, and I hope you enjoy this episode with my new friend, Artist Dominic Quagliozzi. Definitely pronounced it wrong. Artist Dominic Q, right now on Disability After Dark. Dominic Q, hello. How's it going, Andrew? Happy to be here. It's so nice to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm a little tired. I had to get up a little bit early today, but uh, uh, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here. Excited to meet you via Zoom. I've been, you know, we've been corresponding over Twitter for years, but finally get to talk to you in person over Zoom. I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, it's so nice. I can't remember. I can't remember what sparked my idea to have you on the show, but I think we were ta- we we like were agreeing on someone's tweet thread, and then I looked and in, looked more into your like stuff, and I was like, oh, he he wants to talk about like chronic illness stuff and stuff like that, and I was like, oh, I know where we can do that. My show, so here we are. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, for the people who don't know who you are, and we're gonna get into more of you, a lot more of you today. Can you introduce yourself to the uh, disability after dark audience? Sure, sure. My name is Dominic Qualiazzi. I'm a visual artist and chronic illness person. 
from this is kind of tricky. I'm, uh, I was in LA for 15 years and I just recently moved to Massachusetts to be wow. closer to family. Cause I have a two-year-old son now. So, uh, I've been here three months in Massachusetts. It's been a little bit of a nightmare, but we're trying to adjust. Uh, the lifestyle is completely different than what we've been used to. My wife. Oh yeah. Left. LA and Massachusetts are not the same. Oh boy. Yeah. It's, it's been a rough, uh, adjustment. So, um, yeah, so that, that's kind of who I am, uh, demographically and my, uh, chronic illness is cystic fibrosis, which required me to have a double lung transplant six years ago when I was 32 years old. And, um, you know, the years leading up to that, I was having chronic lung failure on oxygen, needing, um, mobility aids, um, feeding tube to keep my weight up. So, uh, you know, I was, it was looking pretty, pretty dire for me for about three or four years. Um, and then, you know, in June of 2015, I got the call from Stanford university for a, a new pair of lungs from a, a donor that had passed away. So, um, well, technically he was still on life support at the time. And then um, we said yes to the lungs and drove from Los Angeles to Stanford uh, at about midnight. It took us six hours. My wife and I drove and I was in surgery the next afternoon. So that wow. kind of changed my whole life around. Yeah. 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 Let's back up a little bit because there's a whole, there's a whole lot <laughs> yeah. back there. There's yeah. a whole lot to unpack in that story. And I want to get into all of that more like more thoroughly. Um, sure. Can you talk a little bit about, now you mentioned that you have CF and, and I've talked to people who have CF and I know a little bit about it, but not a lot. Can you describe for the audience and for me kind of how does cystic fibrosis impact your day to day and what role does it play for you? Yeah. So for me, um, I had uh, the, the mutation for cystic fibrosis that I had was double, double Delta 508. And that's the most common mutation for people with cystic fibrosis. And that generally affects the lungs more significantly than the rest of the body. Um, it also affects your absorption. So people with cystic fibrosis are usually a little bit thinner, malnourished because we're not absorbing as much while we eat um, because your body is kind of riddled with the thick, sticky mucus in your lungs and your digestive tract and things like that. So uh, I was diagnosed when I was three months old because I was having failure to thrive. I, I was coughing a lot, very wheezy as a kid. And then from that point on, once I got the diagnosis, and this is in the early 80s, so it was still pretty, uh, new. pretty new disease. Yeah, and, and they kind of just treated it with like oral antibiotics as needed. Oh, wow. Come to wow. find out like, you know, 20, so... 30 years later, that was, you know, maybe not um, the best way to approach it. Um, in the 90s, there was some huge developments in airway clearance, um, different other types of inhaled antibiotics that treated the lungs directly. And then things like the vest percussion, which kind of helps um, shake out some of that mucus and cough. It yeah. Out. Percussion is where they like, or you, where you like pound on your chest, right? To get it out, to get the mucus out. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I would, my, when I was first diagnosed, my mom would do that. She'd put me on an ironing board. 
and you know like hang me upside down and like all these different positions to help the mucus drain out and then she would kind of do this tapping uh cupping type tapping on my my sides and back and then when i got a little older we would have uh, a visiting palma uh respiratory therapist come and do that and then like I mentioned in the in the mid '90s, they started making uh, machinery that actually mimicked that motion. It was like a giant vest that you'd wear, hooking up to a, an air compressor, and um, that's some of the performances as an artist that I've done, wearing those type of um, airway clearance and treatment devices in public spaces around Los Angeles to kind of bring these private treatments out into public spaces and, and kind of show, expose to, people. Yeah. Bring awareness. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I yeah. think that's really awesome because uh, first of all, we never see that in art. We never see like the equipment that people use. Yeah. You yeah. Know, we never see, we never see things like horror lifts and, and wheelchair ramps as part of art. So the fact that you're doing, you're doing that in, as part of like CF art and bringing that conversation out especially in los angeles where like you know there's such a there's such a body image thing yeah yeah a lot of vanity there a lot of kind of like you know the there's a like a big wellness industry but there's not a lot of like trying to actually get uh healthy in a way in in certain ways so yeah um yeah i got a lot of great responses to those type of performances that i was doing and um, I, I, it was kind of a, a little bit therapeutic for me too. just kind of these treatments that as I was getting closer to needing the double lung transplant, I was doing four or five times a day for, you know, 30 minutes a piece. So that's taking up, you know, two or three hours of my life on these machines just yeah. to, so I could keep my lungs open enough to breathe. I was getting kind of lonely and I, I just felt like I, I was doing all this in privacy and I would, you know, be out at art openings or with out with friends and, and not many people got to see that side of me. So I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to put this shit in people's faces and I'm going to just see how people react to it. And, um, I, I, it was, it was a great experience for me personally as a way to grow and also kind of accept, like, we'll probably be talking about body image a lot during this whole episode, but it was a way for me to kind of accept that these these machines and devices were an extension of my body image because CF up until a certain point in my life, it was, you know, mostly an invisible illness. It just came along with some loud coughing here and, you know, not here and there, but loud coughing all the time. But I didn't, you know, up until about four years before my, actual transplant and when i got on oxygen i needed started needing wheelchairs i started needing the uh, feeding tubes and things like that that's when it started to become like an outwardly visible illness and i i wanted to incorporate that to the art that i was making what was that what was that trend what was that um progression like having to go from something that was mostly invisible to then all of a sudden having it be very visible what was that like what did that feel like for you for me that that was extremely difficult because i always thought that i wanted to try to keep cystic fibrosis private and i thought i could do that and i i kind of made it through high school 
uh, my high school years with only a few like really close friends knowing that I had cystic fibrosis. Yeah. Every everyone else, I'd kind of like lie and say like, oh, I just have bad allergies or I'm like asthma. Sick. Yeah, asthma. And which I like looking back, that's kind of like a jerk thing to do, like kind of pass off one disease for another because it's like not as serious, whatever. I don't even know why. Yeah, or but it's common enough that if you said asthma, yeah, right. Well, understand I guess, that and be like, okay, it's yeah, just whatever. like the internal ableism that I've kind of swallowed over the years. But um, and then around college, I, I, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna just start making art about this. I started making drawings and paintings about my body and like this chronic state of torture like suffocation um i i would have a lot of um what's called hemoptysis which is the lung tissue deteriorates so much from chronic infections that they they just bleed all the time so i'd be coughing up like cups of blood just randomly Fun. Like, that's awesome yeah it was cool. it's horrible and in in being in college and wanting to have sex all the time and like i'm having sex with women and just like just randomly start coughing up blood while I'm having sex because it was so vigorous. It's like not not such a great. <laughs> I mean, there's two ways to look at that. One, I understand that it's oh my god, but also you could say to your partner, "Look, it was so hot for me. You turned me on right. so much that I'm yeah. literally coughing up." <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I. I like my dark sense of humor, like a raunchy sense of humor. I, I tried to, uh, you know, spin it in a, in a fun and kind of jokingly way, but sometimes it got pretty serious and pretty, uh, significant. I'd have, uh, issues where I need to get embolizations where that's, they kind of go in through, um, an artery and, and cauterize the places inside the lungs that were bleeding. So I've, I've had dozens of those to kind of stop the bleeding um, you know, some I've needed blood transfusions cause I've coughed up so much blood at times. So, wow. you know, so like around college, I started to f- realize that my lungs weren't going to last me much more than another decade or so. And sure enough, by the time I was in my early thirties, I, I, I was on the transplant list. So like, I can imagine like just hearing that story, all of the fear that you must have gone through trying to, first of all, trying to hide that, trying to make it something that no one understood or no one, Mm -hmm. you didn't want anybody to like, know, but also knowing that something was wrong and that like, you're going to like having a lung transplant is not a little thing, especially a double one. Like it's not a, it's not a little in and out surgery. That's a, it's a big, it's a big procedure. Yeah, it was, it was big. And it took me, you know, it's kind of a similar process in in which you asked me earlier about the transition from the mostly non-visible to the uh, mostly invisible illness to having visibility Uh, in that transition from uh, to acceptance that I would eventually need a transplant was also kind of that the long reluctant road that I didn't really want to go down I maybe wasn't ready to do that or admit it but I put it off as long as I possibly could. And um, to the point where I like, I almost ended up dying before I even got listed. I ended up in a coma um, because I had a a really significant uh, acute lung failure. Um, 
while I was, I was actually in the hospital recovering from a lung infection, seemingly doing better. And then one night I just could not catch my breath. And I was on a, they hooked me up to a BiPAP, 15 liters of oxygen. Like they were maxing me out of what they could do for me. Yeah. And I was still retaining so much CO2. It was basically like being in a garage with all the windows shut and the car running. I was just, you know, poisoning myself through my own breath. And then I didn't even, I, I didn't, I couldn't even make the phone call to my wife at work to say, you know, I'm going to have to go to the ICU and get intubated because I can't breathe and they need to put me on a breathing machine. The, the social worker had to do that for me because is, I couldn't even. Yeah. yeah scary, like, scary as hell. Yeah. So, yeah. I can, I can imagine how, just how like, and we know how shitty medical care is for disabled people. It's incredibly yeah. ill folks, especially oh, in, the, yeah. in the States. So mm-hmm. I can imagine that whole experience was not fun for you. It was not because I didn't know what was going to happen. I, I mean, I basically, I had no more agency left. I was just, I had to lay there and get intubated. And by the time my wife got to the hospital, they had me intubated, but they didn't have me on enough um, paralytic medicine. So I could still, I was still aware of everything that was happening. And I could, so like, basically when they intubate you, I'm not sure. Have you ever been intubated? Yeah. Yeah. A couple of times. Yeah. And and it's horrible. Right. And so your body is kind of fighting this uh, tube, this tube, and they have to basically paralyze you and, and and, for your body to accept it. And they didn't give me enough of that medication. So I was like trying to, my wife said, I look like a, a fish out of water just trying to like flap my arm around the tube to like knock it out because I was basically in panic mode, even though like they were sedating me, but my body was in like this. Yeah. Your body's mode. reaction to any foreign object like that is like, what the fuck yeah. is, what are you doing? No, no, no. So she was, she got there like right as that was happening. And she was like, what the hell is going on? Like this, this is not right. He's not, he's not under enough. Like you need to help him, give him more medication. And they're like, no, that's fine. Finally, she, you know, she fought them enough where they were like, all right. And then they, you know, bumped up the meds and I I was comfortable enough. But, and so that coma lasted four days and somehow I survived that. And once I did, that's when they were like, you you have to go get listed for this transplant because you're not going to, you can't like keep surviving these type of episodes. And that's going to be a hard thing to hear someone say, like, I, the only time that I had a doctor say you might not survive this or something similar was when I had like walking pneumonia and they were like, you have pneumonia in both your lungs and things kind of bad. And like, you know, you might not <laughs> get out of this. And I remember I was, he didn't say it like that, but I was on the operating table to be operated on. And the surgeon came and looked at me and was like, this patient's way too sick to do anything. We're not operating today. He's got to go and recover first before we do yeah. anything. And like, thank God he looked at me and it was like, was had the wherewithal to be like, no, I won't touch this person. They're not okay. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. having someone tell you that you might not have survived this is it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. It's very scary. Yeah. It adds a whole new level of, um, you know, anxiety to the 
already, you know, high levels of anxiety living with chronic illness. Uh, up until that point, I knew it would always be life and death, but it wasn't really immediately life and death. So it was always kind of like young and dumb and I can do whatever in a way, but this is like, okay, now, now this is actually life and death. Yeah. And I got it really do like, and at that point, did you have your son yet? No, no, we, so we had to wait for my son for a few reasons. One, I, I was much too sick to even entertain the fact that I could even be like any kind of quality um, father figure um, at that time. And then the second piece of that was men, uh, 97% of men with cystic fibrosis have issues with their vast deference. So they're basically including myself. So I, I used to joke in college, like, Hey, I, I, I can, fuck without condoms because I had a vasectomy from God and like all this stuff. <laughs> so, um, so I'm, I wasn't able to have kids naturally. So what, you know, in the midst of being on the waiting list for double lung transplant, we were also trying to work as much as we could to save for this expensive IVF process. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of out of necessity had to, create a and we're my wife and I aren't really planners per se because we know that we want to just do things when we have the health to do so yeah because like but, yeah yeah I totally understand that when you when you if you plan too much when you you have chronic illness or like chronic disabilities and you and then the plans go to shit because right you could plan yourself right out of something that is you know worthwhile or fun or yeah so we we knew we kind of just the timeline would be lungs first recover, then try the IVF to have a baby. So that was kind of what happened. Luckily, it, it has worked out in the six years we had, my son is turning two in December. So, um, yeah. Oh, yay. Probably by the time we're listening to this, it's January. So he yeah. Probably, happy birthday. <laughs> he, yeah. He probably had a birthday. That's amazing. Um, yeah. What, so there's a couple of things I want to impact there. You would say in college that you had, you had a vasectomy from God. Did that ever work for you yeah. to get like, get laid? Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think it definitely worked. And uh, I, you know, I was, I, I'm always kind of like the, the charming. Uh, and also you probably can't tell, but um, my, I'm kind of small in stature. Like I, I'm, I'm five, seven, you know, 130, 135 pounds. Like, so um, I'm not very like aggressive looking and, uh, I'm kind of like this charming artist type of guy. So, I mean, I'll say it, you're hot. I mean, <laughs> you're Thanks. a cute man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was always the approach of like the, the cute, um, charming guy. I told a lot of like funny and dirty jokes. That's kind of how I broke the ice with, with women. And, yeah. and, um, you know, I'm all for like nudity. I'm like, I'm the guy at the party that's like, hey, let's play like flip cup or beer pong for like, you know, if you miss, you take off clothing. Like, so if only you were queer, yeah. you miss, there's a whole demographic that would love to spend time with you. Yeah. Um, I'm not opposed to playing with it, with, with anybody. I don't need, um, I, you know, I, I like to have fun. Well, listen, you know, come to Toronto, we'll figure shit out. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely down. So, um, 
but yeah, so like, you know, I, I definitely used that as a joke here and there and, and it did work a few times and uh, it made for a lot of funny stories uh, after the fact, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't crazy. Like I thought I was, thought I was going to be more crazy in college because I was kind of on my own and like, and also you knew that like, as you got older, the CF might pose yeah. more problems. So I can imagine that like, the the desire to go to to go wild and try all these things you're like I better do it now because I could be I might exactly. not live to right that was 30. always my mentality exactly yeah and um yeah so luckily I was lucky enough to find some partners that were as much into that as I was and I had a very fun time in college so I want to ask you things about that <laughs> off the air we will t- we will talk about that after uh, <laughs> but I also want to know like. You know, one of the things you mentioned was that you're really into nudism, yeah. Which, which I think is cool because I also like being naked, but I often don't get the opportunity to just be naked because I need care and help to do that. And there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of steps for my nude for nudity for me to happen. Was part of wanting to be nude for you to be like I, I want to look at my own body and I want to see that my body has value as a body. Was that a part of it, or were you just like I like being naked? I think it's both of those things. I think, and I think the, I like being naked is kind of reinforcing the value of, of my body and the, and the nude body. And I think it was probably also this kind of negotiation through all of these years of being like this observed body. And like, as a, you know, like I mentioned, I was diagnosed when I was three months old and, and I was in and out of the hospital for treatments for cystic fibrosis since you know since that point at three months old so i would be in the hospital for two weeks at a time you know i would be in for christmases and and i was seeing nurses doctors respiratory therapists you know phlebotomists taking my blood x-ray like so i had people looking at me examining me i i I would be looking at my own tests through x-ray and things but never really kind of grasping that intimacy of of my own body and i think like over the years i realized that really liking being nude and um later on once i moved to la california really embracing like nudist lifestyle um going to nude beaches and spas and um having parties at our houses that were nude and stuff And, and yeah, like actually feeling like, okay, my body is just as valuable as these kind of normal bodies that are all kind of hanging out with me. And at some, you know, at sometimes I've had the oxygen, sometimes I've had the feeding tube um, during all, you know, during some nudist um, endeavors or whatever you call them. Yeah. And, and, and also post-transplant when all I have is scars now, I don't have any feeding tube, I don't have um, the oxygen, I just have the scars of all those remnants and still feeling like my body is, is justifiably attractive. Okay to, yeah. And, and okay to be there. And like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause I think about my nudity too, and I love being naked, but I'm also terrified of it because like you say, when I was growing up and seeing PTs and OTs and doctors and x-ray and all that stuff, even now, like I have to go to the hospital off my IBS and for like, just not feeling great there is a disconnect when you go in there and you get naked for a doctor 
yeah obviously there's a boundary you have to put up there but then it's really hard for you after the fact to get naked for an intimate situation like i just recently upon the time of this recording had my first sexual encounter with somebody two years post pandemic so like Mm. getting naked for somebody the other day was like what oh i have to i'm gonna be naked in front of you what is this so like but you know the idea of being nude for me as a person with with like very marked disabilities is mm-hmm. exciting, but also really scary. So I get that. I get like f- trying to find the liberation in the nudity and being like, my body is valuable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and um, I totally feel you on the, on the, how to like basically change speeds when you're having like this medicalized nudity versus your personal nudity versus uh, intimate nudity with somebody else or yeah. or, gr- or groups or whatever. It's just like, it, it, but to me, those are, they're all exciting in some way. Um, maybe not hierarchically exciting, but like I, I find the, the value of the excitement in those type of situations. Um, usually when I'm in like a medicalized nudity and uh, observation, I kind of filter that into it like an artistic um comprehension of what that could mean for my my work uh whereas the other two are more like kind of like 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 the hedonistic pleasure of just kind of actually being able to say you know i am going to just fucking i'm just going to enjoy my body for what it is like sometimes i look like an alien i got like think like my fingertips are fatter than the rest of my fingers so i look like i have et fingers and then i have et fingers because i have weird arthritic hands yeah, so right. I also have like ED fingers. So my mom and I have this joke from when I was little <laughs> that was, and she'd make me do home, she'd make me do like physio and she'd touch her finger to me and we'd say, <laughs> we'd say, Elliot, I'll be right here and we'd do ET. So I totally get yeah. it. Yeah. And so for me, I, when you have your, you know, your oxygen sensor reading, the pulse ox is that like that red glowing light on the yeah. tip of the thing. So I would just like hold that up and I'd be like ET phone home all the time. <laughs> oh, I love how we have basically the same. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Amazing. Amazing. ET um, was very influential for our generation. Was re- you know, <laughs> for our generation. And, you know, looking back on ET, and I, this is not a question I wrote down, but do we think that ET was a disability movie? Because I would say, yeah. I mean, honestly, I, th- I, all of my friends with CF that I grew up with that, at the time in the eighties and early nineties, we could hang out. And then in the mid nineties, they had studies saying we shouldn't hang out because we crossed. Because we're all that like five feet apart. Stuff yeah. Five from. feet apart. So that's kind of when we be, started becoming isolated, but all of my friends and I used to love ET and we would quote it and joke about it. And I, a hundred percent agree with you. I do think it has a lot of disability themes in it for sure. Well, cause look how they treated, like, look how they treated ET. He was, He was something they didn't understand. They tried to get rid of him. They tried to like, you know, they they, they tried to medicalize him. They tried. Yeah. They tried to kill him. They tried so many. So I think, you know, maybe that's and I this I'm just saying this off the cover. Now, maybe we should have you come back and do a a great flex and joystick episode where we like sit down and review ET. That's a great idea. Hell yeah. I'm totally there for that. Um, But Let's go, let's go back. I want to go back to the nudism for a minute because mm-hmm. I want to ask you as somebody with CF who's, you know, 
struggling to accept their body. Mm-hmm. What parts of your naked body do you like the most? Mm-hmm. That that question fluctuates for me because for me, one of my biggest challenges with CF, other than obviously the lungs, is my um, my mate my weight maintenance. So like I I'll, I'll fluctuate between like one forty and look kind of like beefy, like not to toot my own arm, but sometimes I think I look a little bit like a, you know, Zac Efron. I don't know. <laughs> I don't but, see Zac Efron, but I'm, yeah, I'm here for it. Like, no. you're, pretty, yeah. you're hottie. I'm, I'm, just for it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so, and then other times, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have been sick for a few weeks and I'll, I'll just drop like 15 pounds and I'll be down like one, I'll be down to 120 pounds and I'll, I'll be feeling very thin and kind of weak and feeble. So, it kind of fluctuates, but um, I I like my balls. <laughs> and think, we just found the tagline for the show. Yeah, I think like generally speaking, like I, I'm never disappointed in my balls. They're I just like them. <laughs> I have no idea how to segue out or into that question, so I'm just gonna say, tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just uh, they're kind of nice and big and. Um, they're just, uh, yeah, I know, they're just fun. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to, I don't know how to say we out of that. I'm just going to let that be what it is. I'll say, uh, yeah, I, I met when I went, when I met my wife, she, her, her and her friends had this running joke, how much my wife loved balls. So I said, well, you're really going to love my balls. And I just kept it at that as a joke. And then one day we were, she's a, she's a painter as well. So we were sharing a studio and we were, you know, we were already kind of like flirty and stuff like that. And so one day I turned around and I painted my balls, this like really beautiful blue color. And then I held them in my hands, like they were a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> and I turned around and I said, I got, I got you some posies. And she was like, Oh, those are your balls. And she started laughing. And then, so we have this big joke about, getting her posies for, you know, different holidays and stuff, but it really just means my boss. <laughs> Amazing. The, <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about the relationship with your wife. What, what has it been like as somebody with chronic illness and CF to like, to be in a relationship for you? What has that kind of experience been like for both you and her? Yeah. So for, I met her to, I met her a year after I graduated college. She, she also graduated college the same year. And then uh, we're from the same town in Massachusetts, but we went to separate colleges and we did not know each other before uh, we met, uh, even though we had some friends that kind of knew, knew each other. And there was a lot of overlap, but we never had met each other. Yeah. Um, and she was actually like my first actual real girlfriend before that. Like I mentioned, like, I was kind of scared to get intimate with, uh, you know, not intimate, um, get serious with people because of the disease. And I didn't want to kind of bring anyone else into this. And so I just kind of kept everything very casual, um, you know, one night stands, casual sex, just friends with benefits, you know, until I met her. And then I realized like, she is something different. She is special. Um, our first date, we both got very, very vulnerable with each other for, um, different reasons, but, and, and we just kind of like put it all on the table and, you know, we both had the art interest going and uh, we both knew we kind of 
wanted to get out of Massachusetts and explore the country or the world. And so we kind of started connecting on all these levels. And then, like I mentioned, we got really intimate and I, I usually never tell anyone I have cystic fibrosis this quickly, but I told her yeah. on the, on the first, on the first date. And she told me uh, an issue she was having with her health that has had, has since passed. Thank God. But we kind of opened up on this, you know, really significant, like morbid health crises together. And it, it just kind of really, we can both die. Let's fuck. Like- <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to, to be honest, like that's kind of how, I mean, we were eating dinner and we're just, you know, we were eating dinner. We had gone to see the movie sideways with Paul Giamatti and um, over dinner. She's like, Oh, at the time I was living with two roommates and she's like, Oh, where, what, where are your roommates up to right now? Like, Oh, they're, you know, one's visiting family in Connecticut and the other one's at work. And she was like, Oh, so the, the, your, your apartment's empty. I was like, yeah. And um, so she was like, so then we could go, we could go there and fuck. And I was like, <laughs> I almost like, I almost choked on my chicken and broccoli. I was like, <laughs> and then like, after she, after I realized she was just fucking with me, I was like, I, I like that. I like you. You're amazing. Yeah. That's pretty um, cool. So she, she was able to, you know, kind of break my balls just as much as I like to joke around with her so which i'm sure you liked because you love your balls so it's <laughs> yeah. great um but yeah. what was it like kind of coming out about having cf so quickly and like what how did she react uh she was super cool with it she just was like okay i mean obviously that sucks but it doesn't change anything i'm like i'm really into who you are as a person and you know i i just i want to i like hanging out with you i want to hang out with you and so we just started hanging out all the time and we started sharing a studio, making making art together, and started going on these little like weekend trips, and we were get, connecting very fast. And then, like I think about a month, in a month after meeting, we just started dating officially. And I was like, you know, you're my first actual real girlfriend, and and we just hit it off so well. And um, you know, the first few years, I, you know, I was in in and out of the hospital a lot still, and she would come and spend the nights uh, in the hospital with me. And, you know, she'd pack like an overnight bag and hang out and then go to work from the hospital. And she kind of like just fully integrated into the lifestyle of being with someone with chronic illness. I, I, I've never seen anything like it. It was just really amazing. I mean, that's really special when somebody understands that like, and I've never had this and I don't know if I will have this, but like having somebody who's like, Oh, you needed me there. Let me find a way to be there. I'll be there. Let me Mm -hmm. want to be the hospital. Let me like, my parents have done it obviously, but like, I've never had a significant person in my life be like, Oh, let me just drop my world and be there for you. Usually when I go to the hospital for something, I do it solo and I'm, you know, I go in and I'm admitted for a day or two and then I go out and it's fine. But like, (laughs) but like to have someone that you care about be like, Oh no, let me drop. Let me change my whole plans because I care about you. That, that must've been, both really cool and also that you must be like what the fuck what, what's going on here i was like what, what's, what's what's wrong with you like that why do you know i'm just kidding um it was very super cool and i i just think i think we both offered something to each other at the time that we were both really looking for um and it, it just the relationship grew from there and then we just became best friends and Obviously, the sex was amazing, and we just never wanted to be apart. So we were just. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, 
And it's really cool that like she was not to like toot her horn too too much because I don't want to get I don't want to like feed into info porn. But it's cool that she didn't you didn't say I have CF and she ran off. Yeah. Yeah, she was just like, oh, I, 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 I've heard of that. I don't know much about it. Can I, can I learn? And I was like, yeah, you can definitely learn. I'm, you know, I, I'm more than welcome to. I mean, you're more than welcome to like come to any clinic appointment. You come to the, you know, and she was willing to do that. And she, she started coming to clinic appointments to learn. She wanted to kind of get in there and see what it was like. And, you know, and I, we both kind of agreed like. We're gonna. We're just gonna see how this goes and for how long it can go. And I don't knock. Like neither of us ever held each other um, to any higher standards than what it needed to be. And I didn't need her. I didn't need her to be a caretaker for me, and she didn't need to be a caretaker for me. And in terms of you know those strict senses, we just were like, we're gonna try to do this as a partnership, and however long it lasts, it lasts. And it's been. 16 years so it's been wow it's awesome that's really cool like that's really it's powerful because it doesn't happen a lot for us so like so like yeah i know and i do sometimes i do feel guilty because i have a a lot of friends that have lost really great relationships because of their because of cystic fibrosis or other illnesses and um even like my my best friend post-transplant he got transplanted three months after I did. And he was in a very similar type of relationship with his wife. And then after he got his transplant, his wife was like, I I just can't do this anymore. And they got divorced, but it was after the transplant. So, and my wife and I, and him and his wife were best friends. And we went through this whole thing at the same time, uh, waiting on the list together. And we had our transplants at Stanford and we were just both like, my wife and I were both like, so devastated that that could have been an option for them. And, you know, I mean, they're, they're really close friends still, but just for some reason couldn't manage something about the relationship. So. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can, I imagine it's hard, really, really hard. Um, let's go back to sex. Cause I, cause there's a question I have that I want to make sure that I ask. Cause it was really funny. So, yeah. so you've talked about having oxygen in the, in the nude, community and having to wear that what's it like to have sex on oxygen so i'll tell you just right off the bat sex on oxygen is fucking intense and awesome and i only compare that to being deprived of oxygen and trying to have sex which is like the most miserable thing because then you start getting you know you start getting soft really fast and it's really hard to keep up with the rigorous breathing and so sex without oxygen when you need oxygen is very difficult so when i was finally approved through insurance to get full-time oxygen because i basically was i I needed it to live and then obviously you just kick it up a couple of liters for the actual sex it was like you're getting like reinvigorated so i got like way harder i was able to kind of relax a little bit easier and perform better because you know the the penis runs through or runs on blood and blood needs really i would never have guessed that in (laughs) all my years of having a penis i would never have understood that (laughs) i 
so I was it was so that was like that was it. I mean, for for three years, I you know I was on oxygen for three years while I was waiting for my uh, my lungs. It was actually like really the only way I could have sex. I um, so was I, it like yeah. you're bringing the oxygen tank to the like a, what I'm picturing is you want to fuck you're naked and behind you is a huge oxygen tank that you're dragging to the bedroom like i'm guessing that's not what it is but no that's pretty much exactly what it is but the only difference is the oxygen concentrator which is a machine that plugs into the wall that separates the natural oxygen from the air and kind of kind of bundles it so that's a, a big machine that is generating oxygen and it's sound it's super loud it sounds like a giant generator and that is always in the bedroom and then I had a, a hundred foot cord that ended up in nasal cannula. So I could go anywhere in my house with just that. Oh, nice. And so when it was time to bang, we'd be like, okay, let's like, we either like bang on the couch because it's quieter because the machine's in the other room, or we just say, let's get crazy and go right into the machine with the room, you know, the room with the machine and crank it up and have sex in there. And it, it just um, depended. Are there any sexy positions that are easier for you to get to get oxygen, like easier for you to do because of CF or harder to do? Well, when I was really at my weakest, I, I would have to just my wife would have to ride me all the time because I was like too physically out of shape. But when I was able to be on oxygen, I I could do a little bit of doggy. I could do um, we could do we could do a few other positions. Um, but when I, uh, what, what I did like was kind of standing. So she would be laying on the bed and I'd be standing because that way I wasn't expelling a lot of energy, trying to hold myself up. Yeah. So I, could just, I could just stand there and, and do what I needed to do. So do you have any sex tips for people with CF? <sighs> yeah. I mean, the, the oxygen thing is a big deal. So I also love giving oral and when you're really low on oxygen and you're kind of gasping for air, it, it makes giving oral pretty difficult. So that yeah. was another thing I used to, I used to joke around that like the oxygen was like a, like basically scuba, scuba gear for oral sex. Cause I could just put it on and I could just stay down there for like, just go you know, or just go down there. And hang out there for like an hour and, you know, whatever, and um, not have any problems. So, well, I, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. Um, so, when you had the transplant back in 2015, right? Yeah. Was there, like, I've never gone through something that big, but I have gone through surgeries and I have had big surgery, scary moments where like disability was a thing. Did you? Was there a sense of like fear and grief as you, as you did this? Like, did you feel bad that you were taking like lungs away from someone else where you're like, yeah, my fucking lungs are going to do it. Like, what was, yeah. what was it like for you? The emotions are so complex. It's, it's, it's really, it's really hard to describe. And it's something that I, it, it is something that I try to work through in my visual art and performance art because it's, it's so hard to narrow down with visual, uh, with verbal language. Um, but I would say there was a lot of grief and, and, and grief in different types of, or different forms of grief. So grief one, yes, 
feeling really bad that someone had to pass away for me to continue living. That's a, that's a whole thing that you have to kind of, and I'm still dealing with, like sometimes um, I still see people that I, I don't know who my donor is. I've never seen a picture of them. I know it's a, it was an 18 year old man that had tattoos and spent a little bit of time in jail. That's the only information I knew about him. And they had to disclose that stuff because that made him a high risk donor. And yeah. you have to be, you have to say yes or no to a high risk donor. So of course I said yes, because um, everything else was, so, was pristine. And um, so <clears throat> at times I, and, and obviously he was my stature because his lungs fit into my chest. And there's a very small variable centimeter window of how big the lungs can be. And so the lungs you get are basically somebody your size. Yeah. So I'll still pass people on the street. It happened a lot the first year or two after my transplant where I would see somebody that I thought could be my donor and I would just like start weeping. It was like kind of uncontrollable uh, emotions for the first year or two after my transplant. But even now, six years later, I'll still pass somebody, um, you know, on the street or at, at work or whatever it may be. Um, and I'll think to myself like, oh, that could be my donor or my donor's family or something. And I'll just kind of get struck with this kind of this grief that I don't know, you know, I don't, there's not really something you can do with it. It's just something that. Yeah. It's just sort of there. Yeah. And then the other part of the grief was losing a significant part of my body that I had for 32 years, my CF lungs, even though they caused me so much uh, pain and suffering and uh, but they were a huge part of my identity like probably the biggest part of my identity because I was always like the guy that coughed all the time and you know everything that I had in my life was because of cystic fibrosis meaning like the way I lived my life and the people I knew doctors and nurses and family friends like it was a part of my identity yeah and and especially at the time when I got my transplant I was in grad school for my MFA and I was doing performance art about my illnesses and making paintings and drawings about my illness and my lungs. So my lungs were also wrapped up in a huge part of my artistic identity. And I was always joking around to whoever would listen to me, like my, my uh, MFA peers or my doctors or just friends or whatever. Like as soon as they take my lungs, they're taking all my artistic ability. And I was kind of half joking, but. And you were like, then I won't have a story anymore because. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's another level of grief that I still, still now even dealing with because I, even though I, I have chronic rejection now, so I still have a lot of issues breathing and I'm still getting treatment all the time. And I have diabetes post-transplant, which is very common. They call it like trading off of diseases because the new Oh, that's fun for them. And you're just like, great. That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. They're like, we'll trade you chronic, you know, your chronically deteriorating lungs, but we'll give you, you know, hypothyroidism, blood sugar sugar problems and, uh, you know, all this other stuff. Uh, But in a way though, I still... I, I don't identify as somebody with CF as much and I have more ability now because I can do a little bit more and I'm not doing as much treatment. So I do have guilt about that as well. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's something we don't talk about when you, if you have a disability or chronic illness that is treated, not fully, but treated to a point where it's less than, there is, I guess there would be a guilt and shame around that because now can you qualify or do you feel like you're allowed to be disabled? Like, that's a question that I, that a lot of my guests ask and wrestle with is like, am I disabled? But you kind of are living in this other way of like, am I still disabled? Am I still chronically ill? Yeah. And, and I, um, and what kind of community do I belong to now? Like I was very, very close with the cystic fibrosis community. I grew up with a lot of people my age with CF. A lot of them have passed away by now, but, um, and then I, I was not part of all of the new uh, modulator treatments that have come out in the last five years that basically correct the malfunctioning cells and people are gaining lung function and gaining weight and they're living closer to normal lives now with cystic fibrosis than ever before. And I literally, the day after I had my lung transplant, the first modulator came onto the market. And everyone was, it was like parties in the streets for the CF community. Like, oh my God, like we're going to be living normal lives. It's going to be kind of like a maintenance type of disease from now on. Yeah. And, it, and it's, and the drugs are even better now, five years later. And that's another thing. Like I, if I, not that I would give anything back because I've had a great life since my transplant, but if I held out a year or two longer, I might have never needed a transplant or might've been able to postpone another 10 years or whatever. Cause the transplant story and the, the, the journey is it's epic. It's intense. It's emotional. It's a lot of hardship financially as well. It's yeah. just, it's rough. It's rough. Well, to the, to the financial hardship part, I say, come on, America. Just, Universal healthcare, figure yeah. it out. We can do it here in Canada. So you can do it there. <laughs> Please <laughs> just do it. Um, um, you know, and you mentioned kind of when, when you were chatting there, you mentioned, you know, you had to watch a lot of your friends with CF pass away. And that, I mean, that's got to be like, I know when I see anybody in the disability community on Facebook or on social media, when I read that they passed away, even if I didn't know them, I kind of go like, oh, one of us is, a yeah. light is gone now. Yeah. And it can be really hard. What was that? What was that like for you to watch people that you cared about with the same disease die? That that's been very hard for me. My best friend growing up, her name was Jen. She had CF. She it was my age and she was like, she was like my best friend. Like we were in the hospital together a lot as teenage, like, you know, as 10, 12, 13 year olds. We went on a date to see um, the first, the very first Fast and the Furious together. Oh, wow. Um, that was, that, yeah. was, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, you know, we, we shared a few kisses and told a lot of raunchy jokes to each other. We, you know, we were best friends because we knew at, we were going through the same exact thing. Um, but at a certain point, she decided that, she didn't want to keep doing the treatments and it was too much of a commitment. So she moved to Miami and became a waitress and she was going to just live the life that she wanted to live. However short that would be. 
and I, I don't blame her for it, but, um, you know, she, I saw her one time in LA, she came out to visit. And then a year, I think a year after that, she passed away. So she passed away like in her mid twenties. And, um, that, that devastated me because she of was course. like the only person that I could ever, you know, call or text or message just like, Hey, like, can you believe we have to deal with this shit now? Like, you know, my lungs feel like shit, you know, how are you doing? And she, she was like the only person that ever got it Yeah, because we grew up, had the same doctors, you know, listened to TLC together. Um, she was obsessed with TLC. I mean, told me, told me never to be a scrub. I still, still advice I take till to, 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 to this day. I mean, they were um, right. Never be a scrub. I don't want, I don't want to, sc- I don't right, want to scrub. Exactly. I sure, mean, you're right. But I mean, like I've I've had a few friends with CP pass away, and a few people that I respected with disabilities like mine pass away, and I know that it's just so hard because you're like, because then you start thinking about your own mortality, and you start thinking about your own, like yeah. it could be me, and when's my turn, and have I done enough, and all these things. Um, yeah, it's exactly like that, and you know, I uh, I had friends later you know, in high school and college and post-college I'd meet them through clinic or whatever on CF forums. And, you know, you're just talking to them one day after, you know, you, for years. And then one day you see like everyone on their Facebook wall, Oh my God, you know, breathe easy, rest easy. And you're like, I literally just talked to this guy last yeah, night. Like I just spoke you to know? you. Like, what the, what it's, the it's scary. And then the, the most scary thing now that I'm realizing are people that have had double lung transplants because of CF and then pass away because now that's kind of where I'm at in my life. Like I've had the transplant. I could possibly get one more. Maybe it's hard to recover from two or three. Like I have a friend named Dylan um, who's had two. He's doing pretty well right now, but you know, like I, I call it like parachutes, like you start using up your parachutes sooner or later, you're going to take a jump and there won't be any left. So yeah, I'm getting pretty close to not having any parachutes left. And that that's scary to me. Oh, that, I mean, I've never heard it described that way, but yeah, that would be scary to me too. Like, wow. Um, how does all of that play into the relationship with your kid? That, that's a, also another complicated thing. I try not to think about that when I'm with him because when it's just me and him or just me and him and, and Deb, um, it, we're kind of just living in the moment. And that, that's one of the things that I think Deb has given me. And maybe also I have given her the, this ability to just live in each other's moments and not have to worry too big about the the long-term picture we call it like healthy denial like we'll we'll get to the hard hard stuff later but for right now we're gonna party or go to paris or get high and get go to a nude beach or whatever it may be you know and so um with my son now i just i just try to enjoy like the 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 first time he walks and now he's saying he's starting to say words and uh when he wants to throw the ball with me. I mean, he's got an amazing arm and he's not even two years old. I'm like all the things that I thought I could be or wanted to be that 
or maybe how I would, how I would have man my physical body would have manifested without having CF. I'm kind of like, Oh, I wonder if I would have been that athletic or that strong or, and I can't, I still can't believe that he's never needed a doctor or uh, I'm like, or he doesn't need to take pills every time he eats or I'm like, it's still like the whole uh, idea that you have like a quote unquote healthy kid. It's like, what? I don't It's wild. And I was like, I could have swore I would never have healthy kids. Cause I've been on so many toxic drugs my whole life. I thought my sperm was going to be like poison, but I guess it wasn't. It took, so. I guess <laughs> it took. I mean, like I you... really, I was, I, I joked around that like, did they, did they switch, did, did they switch out my sperm? So I wouldn't, they, so I, they wouldn't make me feel bad for having like, <laughs> Oh no. You know? I mean, is, and I don't know if I, if I'm remembering this right, but isn't there something about CF and like being a carrier? Is that through the, through the dad or the mom? Well, for me, I, I'm an, cause I, I'd be an automatic giving a carrier gene because I have CF. Yeah. We, Deb was tested before we even started IVF journey and she's not a carrier at all. So uh, my son will be a carrier because I have the, the, the active, you know, the, the, um, the, the gene, but uh, he, he won't be able to have CF because my wife's not a carrier. So the thing for him, what, and when he's older, we'll talk to him about this. If he's going to be serious with somebody, that, that person should get tested uh, for the panel of cystic fibrosis mutations. And if they are a carrier, then they have to make a really uh, significant choice whether or not they would try to have kids or, or what, because that they, then there would be a possibility of having a, a child with cystic fibrosis. Yeah. If his partner is not a carrier, then there would not be a chance. So. Yeah. Cause, and thank you for reeducating me. Cause I totally was like, I know there's something I remember like, from grade 12 biology class like and yeah. you know from the from the really poorly produced media we hear about cf i mm-hmm. heard something but i was like i don't know exactly what it is so thank you for telling me again what yeah. it is um i'm looking at my questions and i think we're pretty much done all the questions i was going to ask you uh i had such a i had a really fun i could sit and talk with you for like three more hours it was so yeah, it was nice fun. really chat. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to chat about? Um, let's see. Oh, I did want to mention just because it was kind of funny. And I think, and I think that you would, you would appreciate this. So after my transplant, they had very specific, I had my transplant at Stanford and they had very specific rules about when you could have sex post transplant. Because okay. for me, I had a, a, a sternal incision. So they basically cracked my sternum, sawed it open, took the lungs out, you know, put the new ones in. Sorry for being fun. Crazy. Cool. Did you see my face? I was like, oh, God. <laughs> oh God. And then they coiled me up like a like a like a notebook. Amazing. That's how my, my chest is held together like a notebook. Anyway, so they're like to make sure that's all healed and safe. You have to take three to four months off of sex. And my wife and I were like, there's no way we can do that. Like, <laughs> I don't know if you, you don't understand. It. You don't understand, doctor. We're so into each other. There's no fucking way we can wait. We can wait. We can wait for months. Well, well, I don't know. Have you ever, I'm not sure if you've ever seen Seinfeld, but they like have this thing where they're like, 
have I ever I, seen Seinfeld? I've, I've, of course. Yeah. The answer George, is yes, I, yeah. Yeah. George is like, I've discovered something better than conjugal visit sex. He says fugitive sex. <laughs> and I'm like, we've discovered something better than even fugitive sex. It's like having your life saved and then have sex. So we, we figured out all this equipment to buy on Amazon. It was like a, a foam wedge and a couple of foam rolls and like one of these like memory foam pillows. And we bought all this equipment so we could try to have sex like a week after the, the actual surgery. <laughs> and they were like, you, so the doctor was like, okay, I'm not going to tell you no, even though we kind of technically did tell you no, but just for God's sakes, don't crush his sternum. <laughs> so we had to figure out all these ways to like, keep me propped up and it was a, it was fun it's like a whole new level of a whole like, new level of fuckery quite literally yeah a whole it was new like, level of, like how do you do that like karma sutra for like disabled like, bodies or something cri- i i would just call that cripple sutra i mean that's yeah, cripple sutra it, yeah that's basically so what it was it. exactly yeah so that was that was fun i mean it, it, it's it's weird. It's it's hard to describe like going from thinking you're about to die to all of a sudden being able to like run down a beach without getting out of breath and like having more ability than you had before. It's not not too many people get to experience that. And um so partly I am like a little bit uh not 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 embarrassed by it, but a little bit like I'm bummed out for my friends who haven't been able to experience that. Yeah. Uh, or who maybe have passed away before they got the opportunity for a transplant or whatever it is. But also I, I feel like I want to celebrate that. And uh, especially with my wife, she's put up with so much um, seeing me in such bad shape at times. And, you know, also being like the most amazing caregiver I could have ever asked for to kind of, you know, be this new person for her too. So it, it's been, you know, obviously a up and down experience, but completely wonderful. Yeah. It's definitely a, a transformation. It sounds like, and like, but I'm also glad for you that you get to celebrate that and you get to like, because the other option is you could have been down to 25 and like, yeah. So like, I'm, I'm happy for you that you get to have those experiences, even the hard ones, because you know, the mythology around CF and the way the media has couched it in that movie from a couple of years ago that was like five feet apart or where the fuck it was. Yeah, like, I still haven't so seen that. I haven't seen it either, but I'm planning to hate watch it very soon. Um, <laughs> yeah. to, I actually want to do it for for an episode of Six and, and Joysticks to be like, you know, to tear it apart and show how bad it is. But like, you know, media like that is is so... I think damaging because it doesn't tell the whole story. It only tells bits to and to make it dramatic for a story. And yeah. so the fact that you you have a story that you, and you can use your art to show the real story, I think is cool. Yeah, thank you. Um, how did? And this is not a question I wrote down, but I just thought about it right now. How did um your how did the academic community? when you were like doing that free MFA when, and you were like, Hey, I want to talk about this horrible thing that I have. How, what was the response when you're like, I want to bring this part of my life into my art. To be honest, it, uh, you know, I was getting my MFA 
at um, Cal State LA and Los Angeles, they were, my community was really supportive. And, and ge- the, the general community, artistic community in LA is very supportive. They're really into <clears throat> people who want to put their authenticity on the line, put their body on the line. Um, they really reward that. And so I, I, I was pretty um, fortunate to have a really great um, support system through other artistic peers and mentors and, and some of the institutions there that were, you know, really, and I mean, I was doing this kind of work like 2010 to 2013. And, and I think it's even more mainstream now, like the kind of art. And I mean, there was just a big article in <clears throat> art in America about healing arts and uh, arts and medicine yeah, I mean, so the idea of tripping up the arts is a lot more. It's a lot, at least in our community, like disability, it's way more common now. Yeah, but yeah. I think when you were doing it like ten years ago, it was really yeah. like ground. I mean, it still is groundbreaking because we don't, we still don't see enough. For sure, of it. yeah, yeah. But when I was doing it ten years ago, <clears throat> and and that's not even to say like people like Bob Flanagan and Ron Fa doing it in like the the eighties. In 90s like that was even more mind-blowing but um yeah i think you know they were very supportive and um yeah i couldn't have asked for better support and you know i'm still i'm still trying to work through projects now um they're they're slightly different now because the the the, the, the while i do still have chronic illness the challenges are different. So I'm kind of negotiating all those differences too. And um, it's, it's a little bit hard for me. It's like, there's, there is a little bit of mourning going on all the time for the work that I didn't, that I'd never got to make, or I wanted to make because of the CF. And now it's not really as impactful to my life. So it's, it's all these new negotiations to kind of navigate that. Yeah. There's even a mourning on how to, I guess, how to be an artist. Because you're mm-hmm. not, you don't have that, like you were saying earlier, you don't have that art, that that artistic identity of like the chronically ill, cool artist to mm. to have anymore. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe that's something you you draw about. Maybe that's something. Mm-hmm. Maybe like I'm picturing in my head right now, like two, like a painting with like two versions of you, like the sick one and yeah. then like the not sick one. I don't know if you've done that before or want to do that, but like. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think about that kind of duality that I made a suit in 2019. It's called suit. And it was made out of hospital gowns that I wore in a coma. And um, so now it's so it was the hospital gowns. Then I worked with Miss um, Morgan production. She's an amazing clothing designer from Los Angeles. We designed this suit together. And then, so now the hospital gowns are, a, it's a, a men's suit that I wear to do um, performances or patient advocacy um, talks or lectures and things like that. And it kind of represents that duality of th- those two worlds that I have been in both my whole life, like this kind of daily life or like regular life, but also like my sick persona, sick life. my sick yeah, life. Yeah. So. Um. Uh, I there's so many other things that I could talk to you about, but I'm my brain is like I don't know where to go now. But I definitely wanna, I wanna have you back to maybe to do ET with me. That'd be so yeah, yeah. Let's do, do ET, that. and I 
And then ne next time I come back, I'll tell. So you also mentioned like how uh, making art post transplant and, you know, how that those chronic illness needs or challenges have changed. And one of the things that I have been, has been, have been doing a little bit more recently too, is collaborating with other artists for certain projects. And yeah. one that I, we didn't have time for, but thought maybe you'd be interested in, uh, for next time. Uh, my friend Kim is a pro dominatrix and she pegged me in front of a live studio audience at an art gallery. I thought maybe you'd be interested in that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, I would. Yes, I would. So maybe when we're recording the ET episode, yeah. we can put we can put that in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm always trying to give back body and mind, right? <laughs> well, I mean, with your big balls, I'm sure you give back a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so dominic uh how can the people get a hold of you how can they support you how can they follow you yeah um my website and my instagram are probably what i keep track of most um and they're my website is artist dominic d-o-m-i-n-i-c dot com and that's uh instagram is artist dominic hashtag uh, i mean at artist dominic same with twitter and yeah, you can find me on my website, email me. I'm, I, I love talking to people about um, art and medicine. Right now I'm trying to focus on creating some curriculums. Um, I work with some youth, I work with this foundation um, that supports chronic, uh, youth in chronic pain. Yeah. We design summer camps and workshops and I'm <clears throat> looking to expand that into other areas of the medical field to help like doctors and nurses with burnout through art. Not that I want to toot my own horn here, but have you considered a podcast? Uh, I, I kind of, kind of, I just always I mean, feel like I, I yeah, that, I mean, that's a great idea. You could be my mentor. Maybe we can a hundred percent talk about this when I'm not recording, but I, but you like listen to you for the past hour. You have a great voice for like podcasting. I could listen like, if I had 25 more questions that I wrote down, I could just, we could, we could have gone on for two more hours, but yeah. like, you know, um, we'll definitely talk about that. Cause I think there might be something there, but that's awesome. Okay. I'm so glad you're doing all those things. Yeah. And yeah. Everyone should follow you and support you. And, and yeah. And then I'll, 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 I have a show, uh, some drawings in a museum show at the Rhode Island school of music, Rhode Island school of design museum in January. Um, that I'll right around the time my... you're listening to this. Yes, exactly. Right so around the time the this is happening. So when is that? That'll be uh, mid-January. It'll open. It'll be open through the spring. So if you're around, okay. come see it and come say hi. So yeah, we'll make sure that this comes out in around like when it opens, and then everybody should go who's around there because yes, we've got to support the chronic illness artists doing things because hustling when you when you're sick like we are it's hard yeah it's hard it's a burnout for sure and i'm tired and you know i uh having a son on top of it all is <laughs> a toddlers yeah having a having like a, a, a healthy non-sick running around totally like good to go toddler is probably a lot for you <laughs> 
Um, yeah. But this is so great. And I really, I genuinely love sitting down with you today. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm so, I was thrilled when you asked me to come on and I, I just been a huge fan of yours for years. And, you know, we've talked about some of the other, some of my other friends and, and um, artists I look up to that you've had on your podcast. And I think you, you get great talent on your show because you're tuned into what is happening in the disability communities like nobody else. And um, for somebody who gets a lot of uh, their information from you. I appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you. I, it's really, really amazing. It's an honor to, 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 that people like you want to come on the show. Like I remember when I, when I pitched it to you within 20 seconds, you're like, yeah, sure. Great. Okay, cool. <laughs> so that was nice. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Like I really, I really appreciate that. But nobody wants to hear us love on each other for 20 more minutes. So I'm going to press the off button and we can do that when I'm not recording. Okay. Uh, thanks so much. But Dominic Q, thanks so much for being here and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Andrew. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. That's another episode of Disability After Dark from me, your disabled daddy, Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow my work, you can follow me on social media on Instagram and Twitter at andrewgerza underscore, or you can follow my website www.andrewgerza.com to find out more about what I do. And of course, you can follow us on Patreon to get the show one day early and completely ad-free by going to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark, or you can send us an email to disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com and let us know your ideas for an episode, for a minisode, or for a guest spot. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back to shine a bright light on your disabled stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2022.